If you've got a Bible, you can open to the book of Amos. It's where we've been. Uh, we're going to start there this morning. We're going to spend some time in some other texts as well as we work through the message today. Uh, we've been working through this series entitled Let Justice Roll as we've looked at this big theme that comes out of the book of Amos of God desiring His people not only to gather in pious services of worship, but to have their encounter with God to overflow and roll out into the everyday realities of their lives. And Amos, one of the texts that we've come back to over and over again in Amos is Amos 5, 21 to 24. And we're, that's where we're going to start this morning. Because in that text, what we, one of the things that we see, and we see it elsewhere in the Old Testament, is that God is, is, is not concerned about necessarily the pious practices of His people whenever they gather in places like this, but He's concerned that that would have an overflow and roll out into the realities of their lives. Listen to what He says in Amos 5, 21. He says, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt, your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And verse 24 says, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Other places in the book of Amos were told that the people had perverted justice, that they had poisoned justice, that they had turned what should have been sweet to the taste buds of the people and their experiences of life, they've turned them bitter on account of the way that they've treated others around them. You find this same reality in operation in other places in the Old Testament like Micah chapter 6. In Micah chapter 6, Micah, God says to His people through His prophet that He's issuing an indictment against them. An indictment on account of how they've conducted themselves. Listen to what he says in verses 6 to 8 of Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? In other words, in response to this indictment, what do I bring to God to appease him? What do I bring to God to make things right? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with a burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, Micah says, listen, there's this escalating offering going on here. He starts with burnt offerings. He goes on to a thousand rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil. And then he finally says, will God even be pleased if I've given my firstborn child and offer them as a sacrifice upon the altar for the sins of my soul? And then in verse 8, it's like Micah's asking these rhetorical questions that he expects the answer to be no, no, no. Because he has shown you, verse 8, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, in response to this indictment that I've issued against you, uh, to, his, to his people, he says, I don't, I don't need any more of your sacrifices, I don't need any more of your offerings, but I need what you do whenever you gather in church, whenever you gather at the temple, whenever you come to feast and celebrations, I need that to roll out into the realities of your life. In Isaiah 1, you see the same thing once again. When God rebukes his people for their lack of continuity between their lives and their lips, what they confess and how they live. I read it to you before already in this series, but in Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 12, it says, When you come before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure them. I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of hearing them or bearing them. Sorry. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. For the last several weeks, what we've said about justice and the prophets is this, that justice, the vision that the prophets have for life, for God's people, amongst all the peoples of the earth, the vision that they have for life is this, is they envision God's people acting justly towards one another and towards all the peoples of the earth. And that justice is right and righteous behavior in horizontal relationships, That whereby people whom we interact with experience things that are good and sweet and pleasant. That's that's the vision of justice that the prophets have for the way life should be engaged. And there's been times in which this has been lived out well in the life of the church throughout our history. You can start in the earliest days. There's a long, beautiful history of Christians in the church pursuing seeking justice as we're called to in these texts. Right? In the early church, the way the gospel was preached amongst the peoples right, led to what you may even read about this in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapters 2 and 3 whenever Paul says that what God has done in Christ is He's crushed the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Perhaps the most racially charged tension in the history of the world between these two people groups that God has abolished it and crushed it and made the two one new man in Christ. And when the gospel took root in those ancient cultures, it began to subvert this racism that existed in between first century Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. It brought reconciliation and real community where there had been division and hostility for centuries as the church pursued justice. Or whenever the Romans tossed their so-called blemished children into the body dumps, Whenever they had children with imperfections or oftentimes even female children because it was a patriarchy, they wanted to pass their name on to sons. And so sometimes females, just because they were female and many times imperfect children, were discarded in these mass graves, mass body dumps. And what our ancient brothers and sisters did in those eras, those who were Christians, they went to the dumps and they rescued many of those children, adopted them into their own families, and raised them as their cherished, beloved sons and daughters as they sought to do justice in the same way that God had adopted them through Christ, that they were adopting these unwanted, discarded, and neglected children. They were seeking to do justice. When plagues began to ravage the Roman Empire, Many of the non-Christians in the culture were like, listen, their worldview led them to see this life is all there was. So I'm going to live it up now. Nobody's going to take it from me. So they fled for the hills and they, they abandoned the cities. They abandoned the urban centers where the plagues were ravaging the population. But the people who ran to the urban centers and to the bedsides of those who were sick were our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And they cared for the sick. They cared for the dying. Many times contracting the plague and disease themselves and dying right alongside of those that they were caring for. Because they sought to do justice. You look at the, the, the more modern examples of William Wilberforce and John Newton in the UK, along with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and others in the US of their own experience of being redeemed out of slavery to sin led them to work for the abolition of the, of the, of the human slave trade. You had Christians who were using good theology like Dietrich Bonhoeffer to combat the ideology of white supremacy in Nazi Germany. They were working for justice. They were seeking it and laboring for it. They were answering this call of God to pursue it. And in our day and in our time, we can learn lessons from those, our, our, our modern and ancient ancestors in the faith. Because they both confronted evil and, and worked from a framework of compassion as they cared for people. And yet in our day, one of the things that I think is needed for us as a church is, is this, is to make some distinctions and distinguish between what it looks like to pursue justice from a biblical worldview versus a non-biblical worldview. In other words, there's distinctions between the cultural conversations around justice that exist within our nation in the, in 20, in the 21st century and the biblical category of justice from the Scriptures. They're not always parallel. They're not always one for one. So in other words, you can't look at every movement that says we are for justice and working and advocating for social justice. You can't look at, as a Christian, you can't look at every movement and just hit your wagon to every movement that says we are for justice. Because not every one of those movements is working for justice from a biblical worldview. Or they might be working for something other than justice, but they're calling it such. And so we have to be discerning and wise about how to do that, right? And there's one or two ways that we can try to do that. I can, we can stand up, I can stand up here and say, listen, here's every movement you should support and here's every movement you should reject. And that just would be unhelpful for everyone in the room, okay? Uh, why? Because what we need more than anything else is not just a list of categories and say, you should reject this movement, you should embrace this movement. What we need is to learn to see every movement through the lens of a biblical worldview, Because then the movements that arise tomorrow and two months from now and two years from now and 20 years from now, we're able to begin to view and process those things through a biblical worldview rather than going back to our sheet and going, well, that wasn't on the list. You with me? And so we need to learn to see this issue of justice from a biblical framework and a biblical worldview. And so that's what I want to spend our time on this morning. We've dealt with some really heavy issues of justice for the poor last week, of sexual abuse the week before, and the whole Me Too movement. Next week, we're going to deal with another heavy issue. I I felt like we needed a little bit of a pause just just to think biblically about just some general concepts that we want to use to evaluate movements as they rise and fall, come and go within our culture. Now, some of the thoughts in here, I want to go ahead and give credit where credit is due, don't belong to me, right? They belong to a man by the name of Thaddeus Williams, who's a professor of biology at Biola University, in a podcast called Think Biblically. He shared some of this material. I'm borrowing some of it to share it with you, right? And so I think it's really helpful, some of the distinctions that he makes. And so what I want to do is work through five distinctions with you this morning about 
approaching justice and the pursuit of justice and seeking justice from a biblical category versus just a cultural conversation. All right, so the first thing is this, is this, is not every personal issue is a justice issue. Not every personal issue is a justice issue. Let me tell you what I mean by that. See, not every issue or perspective that a person raises is an issue of justice in, in a biblical category, right? If, if a movement or an individual right, advocates for justice from a framework that says that you and I as human beings, as creatures, have the authority and right to define for ourselves our meaning, our purpose, our telos, right, the reason that we exist, if we have that in and of ourselves, that we have a chance to build that out for ourselves, right, that it's not, it's not, it's not submitted or defined by our creator, but as a creature we get to define that, Right? If, if, that, if a movement says that we get to define why we exist, and then if anybody disagrees with why we exist, then they're acting unjustly towards us, that is not working for justice from a biblical worldview. Because a biblical worldview recognizes that freedom does not come with me defining who I am and then, then attacking everybody else who stands against who I've defined myself to be. But freedom actually comes whenever you understand that you are a creature, that God is the creator, that he has made you in his image, and that whenever you walk with him, you submit to him, you come under his authority and bend your knee to him, and live out that identity, that's where you find true freedom. It's not in defining myself, but it's being defined by God. That's where real freedom comes from. It doesn't come from following your heart, but letting God define you and following His heart. Which means this, that not every personal issue is a justice issue. Listen, every culture has been marred by sin. There's... 1950s, leave it to beaver, black and white television with Oldsmobiles, right, sitting in the driveways, that, that was not the ideal culture. That was not, so, so many of us think, if I could just get back to the good old days. Those were not the good old days. They were still, that culture was still marred by sin in so many destructive ways. Every culture has been, but the one that we live in today has been perverted and distorted to say, you define your purpose. You define your meaning. And you don't submit to any objective external definition of why you're here and why you exist. And so if, if a movement says, you get to define who you are, and then everyone who disagrees with who you are, then you fight against them at all costs, that is not working for justice from a biblical framework. That means not every personal issue is a justice issue. Second, second, biblical justice is sought both from the outside in and the inside out. When I traveled to South Africa last December with one of our mission partners to do some teaching and training there, I met several, um, a, a host of young university students who came down uh, to the coast from Johannesburg to work with us at this conference that we were uh, participating in. Um, and, and just dialogue with them and sitting down with them, talking with them about the issues in their country and in their culture. Right? Their race relations are as just as... Uh, volatile as the race relations can be in the States. Right? From, from the late 1940s to the mid-1990s, they lived under a system of apartheid where there was legalized 
uh, segregation and discrimination based upon racial lines. In the 1940s, those laws, be, or, sorry, 1990s, those laws began to be rolled back slowly. And as they talked about race relations in South Africa, 20 years removed from the rolling back of some of those laws, one of the things they said to me I thought was very profound. He said, just like in the States in the 1960s, he said, even though the laws on the books were changed, the hearts did not change. The hearts of the people did not change. Which is why biblical justice recognizes that to work for justice is to work both from the outside in and the inside out. It's not either or. Listen, you didn't, you don't, you didn't, they didn't sit back like the, the, the civil rights Movement leaders did not sit back and just say, we just got to wait for people's hearts to change. Right? We, we just got to wait. We, we're going to pray and we're going to wait for people's hearts to change and then maybe the laws will change. That's not the course of action that they took. Rather, what did they do? They began to, they began to lobby. They began to protest nonviolently. They began to advocate for equality of persons. No longer being discriminated against based upon race or color, upon ethnicity. They begin to work from the outside in to change unjust Jim Crow laws, particularly in the South. And they paid dearly for it. But they worked from the outside in. They just didn't sit in their homes and just say, well, we just got to wait for the hearts to change. But listen, just because the laws changed doesn't mean the hearts followed. So we still have to work for the conversion of men and women, for biblical teaching around the the fact that we all bear the Imago Dei, all of us bear the image of God. It's been stamped upon our souls, black and white and Hispanic and whatever ethnicity, whatever minority, whatever majority culture you live in, the, the image of God is stamped upon all of our souls. And Jesus' blood ran red at the cross to save sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation and to bind them together in one church. See, the civil rights leaders work from the outside in. But listen, we also have to work from the inside out because... Let me give you another, another, another clarification here. Listen, a, a, a movement that defines all sin and all evil as external systems and structures is not a biblical worldview. It's not. Now, there are external systems and structures that promote injustice. That's actually a biblical category. Listen, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 94, verse 20. When he writes, can, the, can wicked rulers be allied with you? And who does he define as wicked, wicked rulers? He says, those who frame injustice by statute. In other words, they pass laws and make regulations that normalize and frame up and build out an unjust society. So there are statutes and laws and regulations that need to be rolled back at times because there are wicked rulers who frame injustice by statute. There are wicked people who frame injustice by statute. But not all sin, not all evil is related to external systems and structures. 
In fact, we're told, we, you have to recognize that as a Christian because the, the, the root of sin is not a law that's passed in a nation, but the hearts of men that pass it. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and what you're going to find is that in the fall, everything, everything that God had intended to be right and fair and just gets turned on its head, it gets turned upside down. And the effects of sin are pervasive in lives, in, in, in individuals' life and lives of people in a culture. It's pervasive. And whenever we talk about total depravity, right, what we're saying is this, is not, not, not that everything is as bad as it could be, but that every part of us is marred, every part of us is defaced by the effects of sin. And that starts in the human heart. And as you get sinners collected into groups, they begin to enact and work in ways that create unjust, unjust treatment of other people. So it's a heart issue. So you've got to work from the inside out to bring the gospel to bear upon the deepest needs that people have, the conversion of their, their, their hearts to a biblical worldview, to, 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 to give up their attempts to define themselves on the basis of their class or their ethnicity or, 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 their, or, or, or their, 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 their economics. And to say, listen, n- none of this gives me any merit of standing before God. Because before Him, I am a lost, hopeless, helpless sinner in need of grace that was shed upon me through the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, what we, we need to work from the inside out. We're outside in. Yes, there are certain laws that need to be changed, regulations that need to be rolled back, but that does not mean it's going to change the heart. The only thing that could change the heart is grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, let's keep moving. Third, biblical justice, it sees two primary group identities. Two primary group identities. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after Paul articulates really in a nutshell the gospel message and speaks about the resurrection from the dead, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, he says, For as in Adam all die. What he means by that is this, that everyone related to Adam, everyone connected to Adam, everyone who descends from Adam, ultimately bears the penalty of Adam's sin. And they themselves also sin, incurring God's judgment upon them. As in Adam, all die. And who's related to Adam? Everyone. Everyone who's ever lived, everyone who's ever breathed, everyone who's ever been born. But he goes on to say in the latter part of verse 22 in 1 Corinthians 15, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Also in Christ, everyone connected to Christ, everyone related to Christ, everyone who's come to Christ in repentance and faith, they shall be made alive. In Adam we all die, in Christ we shall be all made alive. That's not saying that everyone, it's not this universal promise that everyone who's ever lived is going to be made alive at the resurrection and live with God and Christ forever. But what it's a promise is that everyone who trusts in Christ, everyone who treasures Jesus, everyone who turns from sin and comes to Him in faith, they shall be made alive. And whenever the, the authors of the New Testament present Christianity in a biblical worldview, 
They present it with these two primary group identities. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. Those are the two primary ways that you're seen and identified in the Scriptures. But listen, the cultural conversations around justice does oftentimes fragment us into all sorts of secondary and tertiary group identities. All sorts of them. Listen, one of the things Thaddeus Williams says in that podcast, he says, if a view of, if a view of justice breaks people into group identities generating a spirit of mutual suspicion, hostility, fear, labeling, offendedness, and preoccupation with one's subjective feelings, then it is not biblical justice. If it seeks to fragment people on the basis of secondary and tertiary group identities. Now listen, the Scriptures do recognize a diversity amongst humanity. There's no doubt there are different races, there are different classes, there are different uh, ethnicities, there are different ge- ge- geographies, right? all, different nationalities, all these things. There are some distinctions, but listen, those are all come secondary to these primary ones of in Adam or in Christ. And a biblical view of justice is going to want to pursue conversations around those two identities and then let those identities flesh themselves out in the way that we handle the secondary and tertiary identities of race, ethnicity, nationality, culture, and class. How does that get fleshed out? In the same token, though, in the same breath, we must also say that if justice... um, Let me say it this way. I'll use his own words. If a view of justice interprets all truth, reason, and logic as a mere construct of, of one class or another, if it encourages us to miss someone else's viewpoint on the basis of their skin tone or gender, then it's not biblical justice. See, biblical, pursuing biblical justice recognizes these two primary group identities, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit down and have conversations with people who come from all kinds of secondary and tertiary identities kind of groups of people. And I'm going to listen for their experiences. And I'm going to grieve with them over what they are grieved over. I'm going to be compassionate towards them. Right? I'm not, I, want, I want to first, listen, this is so, this is so important. Right? Whether it's in, in any relationship horizontally. Whether it's marriage, whether it's friendship, whether it's, whether it's being a part of a church body, whether it's dealing with sticky, difficult issues. Right? Our tendency is to want to seek first to be understood before we seek first to understand. But a part of seeking justice is to first seek to understand before you seek to be understood. Because my experience growing up in a lower middle class Caucasian home in South Louisiana is not the same as somebody's experience growing up in a uh, below the poverty line in South Dallas or somebody else's experience growing up with a host of resources in Plano. It's not the same experience. 
Even though we may primarily be in one of these two group identities, it, I did not have the same experiences they did. And so I want to seek first to understand before I seek to be understood in those contexts. But all the while trying to frame it up, frame up the conversation, and keep coming back to the fact that you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And a part of the, and the source of the issue of all the injustice in our culture are those who either continue to operate like they're still in Adam in areas of their life or those who continue to run in full-on rebellion against God. Fourth, and we're almost done. It might be the shortest sermon I've ever preached here and that'll be all right. It's getting warm in the room. Fourth, biblical justice recognizes, still recognizes and retains order. Right, and so what it doesn't do is it doesn't just flatten humanity. Right, I, I heard about um, uh, an article that was written recently uh, where one author was advocating for the flattening of all humanity. Right, where everyone is on, everyone is equal in function, including parents and children. And so what the author was advocating for was that the parents seek permission from their infant children before they change their diaper. Like, can I open up your diaper? To change you, right? Goo goo gag. Okay, yes. All right. Right. But the Bible still sees there are certain there's a certain order to human society, certain structures that God has ordained and put in place, like a parent-child relationship, like an elder congregation relationship, like a teacher-student relationship. There's certain orders that God has given. Some who lead and some who follow. There, there's an order to that. And justice does not, biblical justice didn't just flatten that out. It does flatten out human dignity. It says everyone created in the image of God is worth being dignified for who they are. And who, who they are in the image of God. But it doesn't flatten out the order and structure of the rest of our societal experiences. But cultural conversations about justice oftentimes will seek to flatten that out and see any kind of hierarchy and oppose it in the name of equality. But that's not biblical. It's not a biblical worldview. Fifth and finally, justice is a response and not a prerequisite. I'm going to bring you back to the book of Amos as we close this morning. It's a response and not a prerequisite. I'll tell you what I mean by that. It's not a prerequisite for a relationship with God, but a response to one. Right? I, I think that some of the cultural narratives at times around these movements that are advocating for justice, at times are actually advocating a false gospel. Right? They're setting up realities and saying right they're pitting one against another and dividing people on the basis of second secondary tertiary group identities and they're saying if you're on our side then you're pursuing righteousness if you're on their side you're pursuing in you're pursuing justice over here injustice over here and you you feel good about yourself because you're working in this movement, if you're kind of getting behind whatever it is that's being advocated within the culture in those conversations, you feel really good about yourself, right? you feel like you're, you're, you're justified, you feel like you're righteous, you feel like you're made right with God because you're at being an advocate for these people who are fighting against the man, against the system, whatever it is. 
And on the other side, you're resisting that. And so you feel like you're righteous and you feel like you're right with God and you feel like everything's good in your world. And it sets up these competing gospels to say you're right and with God and righteous in life if you adopt my perspective or my perspective as they fight against each other. But listen, I want you to know biblical framework and biblical justice never pits us against each other like that to fight for for that kind of righteousness. But it's something that's given by God. Listen listen to what Amos has to say about this as he kind of comes off of his accusation of Israel on account of the four sins in Amos chapter 2 that he's going to judge Israel for. Listen to what he says. In verse 9, he says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. In other words, this mighty people, the Amorites, he says, I crushed them. Even though they appeared to be massive and overwhelming and an intimidating presence and force in the ancient world, God crushed them. Yet it was I, God says, that did that. Verse 10, Also it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not indeed so, or is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. In other words, God says, I crushed your enemies. I rescued you from bondage. I delivered you into the land. I raised up leaders for you. God says, I did all of that. It was not you. And yet, this is how you've responded. He says, you turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go unto the same girl. You sell the righteous for a pair of sandals. You, you, you take bribes and fines. He goes, this is how you responded to all the grace and power and redemption that I brought in your life. Which on the heels of that should be, as God has acted on your behalf, He says to His people, Israel, as I've acted on your behalf, you should act on the behalf of those who are around you, who are in need, just like you were in need whenever I showed up and and acted on your behalf. And listen, church, we can say the same thing today. When you look at the New Testament, we can say it was He who raised up a prophet like Moses and sent him to preach the good news to the poor and liberate the oppressed and the captive. It was he who canceled the record of legal debt that stood against us with its legal demands, setting it aside and nailing it to the cross. It was he who caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was he who saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It was He. It was He. It was He. Right? Your seeking justice and righteousness is not a prerequisite for relationship with God, but it should be the result and the response of Him establishing relationship with you out of His free grace. And if, listen church, if that is not the case for us, 
And then God has the same word to us that he does to Amos and to Isaiah and to Micah. Repent. Return. It's great that you gather and sing songs in buildings. But it is the grace that you celebrate when you gather for corporate worship, even to share the Lord's table together. Does it overflow into the lives that you're living Monday through Saturday in the way that you engage and address the cultural conversations around you from a biblical worldview. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning recognizing that, that your wisdom your wisdom is needed in light of the light of every cultural situation we find ourselves in, but in particular this one. In relation to this issue of confronting evil, whether it be personal or systemic, whether it's working from the outside in or the inside out to convert hearts or to change laws or to do both, not either or, your wisdom is needed. The power of your Holy Spirit is needed to bring people to a place of repentance and recognition of ways in which they have perverted justice in their own lives. Or the ways it has become normalized within our culture that we don't even see or question. But God, may we as a church not be splintered into secondary and tertiary identity groups. But may we who are in the, in the church, in this church, May we be bound together by the blood of Jesus so that what segregates people in the culture would not divide us in the church, but that we might have a powerful witness to the world because we're able to be united around the blood and body of Jesus regardless of where we were raised or the color of our skin or the status of our bank account. And the world would see people from classes and races and geographies and backgrounds united as one body, as a witness to the power of the gospel. And that it would revolutionize and change a culture as we work for what is right and just. May you make that true here first in your church before we seek to be advocates for that in the world. May we have a proper response to the grace that you've given us. The way you've saved us. The way you've loved us. The way you've provided for us. The way you've met us in our need. God, may it compel us towards a world that is in need. But in all of that, God, we need your power and your wisdom. And I pray that you would make it so. May we be centered around the cross and centered around the gospel as we seek to have a witness in this community. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.